This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. This is Under the Weather from the BBC. With me, Claire Nazir and Simon King. In this podcast, we'll be joined by a range of experts as we answer some of weather's most interesting and challenging questions. In this episode... What would a nuclear winter look like? Temperatures could get below freezing and it would also be dark and it would be dry. The hydrological cycle would be reduced. This temperature contrast between a cold continent and a warm ocean might produce huge storms along the coastline also. Under the weather from the BBC. I can't believe we're talking nuclear winter because I, it, it takes me back to my childhood, Simon. Right. I when was, was so scared. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, 70s, 80s, some parts of the 90s, early parts. I remember being really scared that we were going to be blasted, annihilated by a nuclear bomb. Hmm. And I kept saying to my mum, we need to move somewhere else. We can't live near London because we're a prime target. I mean, I would have been 11 or 12. And then these films came out depicting that and what would happen after the event of a nuclear holocaust. And it was dark, it was grim, and I didn't want want to be part of it at all. And this was on the back of the tensions between America and the USSR, as it was then. I was only born in 1980, so for me, I was probably a little bit too young for me to be concerned about it. But I asked my dad, actually. I said, well, we're going to do this podcast episode on a nuclear winter and I just said to him can you tell me about what it was like for you what did you experience and interestingly he said that uh, in our old house where I grew up we had a cellar and it wasn't my dad's mind about the threat of a nuclear war and he said that oh yeah I had a a bit of a plan I, I thought that you know if anything were to happen we would go down into the cellar and you know I thought really well, you actually properly thought like that, that you were concerned enough to think that you're going to take your family and live in a cellar in the house. I always thought it would be radiation sickness, which would eventually, you know, wipe out our family. But in fact, I think it's more than that. There is a bigger picture which involves sunlight or the blocking of the sun through dust particles, smoke particles in the upper atmosphere. And not only that, precipitation. Well, the question we're going to answer today in this podcast is, what would a nuclear winter look like? Mm. To help us answer this question, we're pleased to welcome Professor Alan Robock, a distinguished professor of environmental science who researches the climatic effects of nuclear war. Professor Robock, how are you? Fine, how are you? We're very well, thank you. Uh, Can you take us back to the early 80s when you first came across the term nuclear winter? My first exposure was at the fall American Geophysical Union meeting. I went to a talk on the climatic effects of nuclear war, and it was canceled. And it turned out that some of the authors worked for NASA, and NASA had told them NASA does not work on nuclear war. So they went back to the drawing board, and they said, what are we going to call this? And they figured out to call it nuclear winter, the cause and the effect in two words. It was a brilliant label. And then they worked on the paper, and... I got interested in that because I was doing climate model simulations of the effects of volcanic eruptions, and I figured I could put smoke into my model instead of sulfuric acid and see what the effect would be. So I got started on the research, and the physics is very simple. If you block out the sun, it gets cold and dark at the Earth's surface. Volcanic eruptions are natural. 
we don't control them. But this is something humans would do to ourselves. And so the idea that we could put enough smoke in the atmosphere to make it cold and dark at the Earth's surface was really amazing to me. And so the question was, how cold would it get? How long would it last? And how much? Sm- and that depends on how much smoke you put in the atmosphere. But it also depends on how long the smoke stays there after it gets lofted after the fires. And Back then in the 1980s, we didn't have the computers and the climate models to do that calculation. Nobody knew. We looked at, you know, what was the next year, and I did a calculation with a simple climate model called an energy balance climate model that could run for several years. But I assumed that the smoke would fall out after a few months. It wasn't until 10 years ago when we revisited this problem with a modern climate model that we calculated that the smoke would last for more than a decade. That was something quite new. So based on these new climate models, what were your findings? If a city is attacked with a nuclear weapon, it will start a fire. And it's like bringing a piece of the sun to the earth for a fraction of a second. And the fire will produce smoke, and maybe 3% of the stuff that burns will end up being lofted into the upper troposphere and then heated by the sun and lofted into the stratosphere and stay for a, a long time where there's no rain to wash it out. This idea was first uh, expressed by uh, Paul Crutzen and John Burks in an article in AMBIO, which had a, spe- a Swedish journal, which had a special issue on nuclear war, and they were looking at the effects of ozone As you know, tropospheric ozone is caused by sunlight reacting with chemicals in the lower atmosphere. And they said there'd be a lot of pollution and a lot of chemicals. But by the way, there might be some fires and smoke, and that might block out the sun and affect the generation of ozone. And oh, by the way, that smoke might cause climate change. And nobody had thought about that before. And so that's why these uh, first the American and Russian groups started working on this and calculating how much climate change you would get. And at the time, obviously, there was a lot of fear in the early 80s that this was going to happen. Did you see that as a reality yourself when you were applying these computer models? There was a nuclear arms race going on. The U.S. and the Soviet Union were each building more and more and more weapons. And we got up to about 70,000 nuclear weapons. The results of the science done on both sides by the Russians and the Americans were presented to the leaders of these countries, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. And in both cases, they said, this can't be propaganda because the Russians and the Americans got the same answer. And they said, looked at each other and said, Why are, this is crazy. We could kill ourselves. And, and that ended the nuclear arms race. And they started reducing the number of weapons. They almost got rid of all the weapons, but because pressure to build Star Wars, this strategic defense initiative, which doesn't work, but uh, the Russians were afraid of it. The Americans wanted to do it. So that limited their ability They didn't actually end all the weapons, but the number of weapons started going down, and it's been going down ever since. So when you saw the results of all this research, and these were kind of presented to the US and the Russian governments, I mean, were you yourself a little bit scared by what you saw and what you read and researched? Oh, yeah. I mean, if it happened, it would be the destruction of civilization and most people on the planet. It's very scary. And... There were at the same time people were worried about the direct effects of nuclear weapons. As we know, unfortunately, when you drop bombs on people, there's radiation and fires and blast, and we see the horror of Hiroshima uh, with uh, the little boy uh, bomb and and uh, Nagasaki with the fat man bomb being dropped on them. And so we know the ho- direct horrors, and that has scared people so much that they haven't been used for more than seventy two years. 
But these indirect effects of climate would be much worse. You know, more people in China could die from a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia than in both countries combined, even if no bombs were dropped there. And there was a lot of pressure from other countries in the world for, for the arms race to end also. Climate scientists today are talking about global warming and climate change, and you've got a lot of climate change deniers and saying, well, your models are, you know, they're not, they're not correct. They're not, not, you know, not realistic. So back in the same people that these are the same people that look at the weather forecast for tomorrow. <laughs> Probably, yes, exactly. They don't understand where it comes from. <laughs> but then it comes it, from the same models. <laughs> but then in nineteen, I'm, so I'm intrigued. In 1983, you know, you you and other scientists have come up with this idea of okay, the climate is going to change as a result of you know, dropping nuclear bombs. What 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 made the policymakers? What made the politicians actually listen to you then and think? Well, actually, yeah, okay. I trust those global models. I trust those scientists. It seems strange that in 1983 that they were listening, I guess. But then now we've got deniers and, you know, lots of speculation around global warming and climate change. There were deniers at the time, too. And you could look at people's politics and realize that it was the very conservative people who wanted to build more weapons and, and supported the military, who tried to poke holes in the theory. But the fact that the Russians and Americans got the same answer uh, was a very strong statement. And they said, well, again, your models aren't any good. Back then, the models were very crude. The American uh, model, the, the TAPS model, was a single column model. It averaged the whole world into one column. Eventually, they did a climate model simulation with a three-dimensional general circulation model on the Cray computer at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. But they could only do a 20-day simulation with no ocean and with a, only the lower part of the atmosphere. The iPhone in your pocket is, is 10 times more powerful than that Cray. Everybody's walking around with a supercomputer in their pocket now. So back then, the models were quite crude and people criticized them, but the physics were pretty simple. So... There were mass movements of anti-nuclear rallies in, in the UK and in the US and other places. I'm not sure how many there were actually in Russia, but th this also helped to end the arms race. So you pushed your theory out into the public domain. There were huge headlines like a cold, dark, starving world. Ronald Reagan quoted as saying, this will wipe out the earth as we know it. What happened next? We started reducing our weapons and the US even... Uh, allocated money to pay Russian scientists to help dismantle the Russian weapons and ship the plutonium and uranium to the United States to be used as fuel in nuclear reactors so so that they wouldn't get diverted. And uh, the number's been going down ever since. Unfortunately, there are more than two countries now in the world with nuclear weapons. And the total number in the world today is not zero yet. And you've done some research, haven't you, about what a nuclear winter would be like should some of the world's smaller nuclear countries go to war. What happened actually was at the American Geophysical Union meeting, the same meeting I mentioned before, I ran in the hallway, I ran into Richard Turco and Brian Toon, two of the original authors of the first nuclear winter paper. And they said, uh, Brian said, you know, somebody asked me, what would happen if there was a war between India and Pakistan? And I told them, oh, they only have a few small nuclear bomb, atomic bombs, probably not much. But then I went back and did a calculation of how much smoke would be generated. And, you know, if each of them used 50 Hiroshima-sized bombs, it would be more than 5 million tons of smoke. And I said, that sounds like a lot. Uh, who's going to calculate the climate response? And they said, well, we thought maybe you would. 
And so that's what that's what got me going again. And my student, Luke Oman, who was studying volcanic eruptions using the NASA uh, climate model, decided to put smoke in. And this model happened to have the ability to calculate the effects of smoke and transport it. This It was designed for pollution in the lower atmosphere, but it worked just fine by putting it in the upper atmosphere. And, and so we did that calculation of this, this scenario. And that got very interesting results. And then we said, well, let's go back and redo the nuclear winter calculation because there were always doubts about whether these very simple models were correct or not. And so we put not just 5 million tons of smoke, but 150 million tons of smoke, which was the scenario that we had used in the 1980s. And it turned out it was correct. You can still produce nuclear winter today with today's nuclear arsenal. So the problem is not solved at all. So you had the same results that you had back in the the 80s. Did anyone take any action to do anything about it? We tried to get people to pay attention, and it was pretty frustrating. Most people didn't want to hear about it. It was such a depressing thing. When I give a talk, people walk away. Uh, they, they, a lot of people just choose to forget about it. As, as Mark Twain said, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. <laughs> it feels better just to pretend it doesn't, they didn't hear it and somebody else will solve the problem. This is Under the Weather, and in this episode, Simon and I are joined by Professor Alan Robock, who researches the climatic effects of nuclear war. So let's now talk about the weather in a nuclear winter. What could we expect? It depends where you live. Uh, our calculations, no matter how much smoke you put in the stratosphere, is that the e-folding lifetime is about seven years, which means after seven years, you'd still have about a third of the smoke there. So it lasts for a, a couple decades. If you're in the middle of a continent without an ocean to moderate the temperature, temperatures could get below freezing, and it would also be dark, and it would be dry. The hydrological cycle would be reduced. If you lived on the west coast of a continent, either in the northern or southern hemisphere, the temperature changes wouldn't be as large because it takes a while for the ocean to cool. The ocean would cool by a few degrees. But this temperature contrast between a cold continent and a warm ocean might produce huge storms along the along the coastline also. So with the soot in the in the stratosphere and the sun shining down and obviously a lot of the rays of the sun are blocked coming and hitting the Earth's surface, what happens to the ozone layer? Our calculations show there will be huge heating of the stratosphere, depending, again, on how much smoke. But even for the case of India and Pakistan with only 5 million tons of smoke, temperatures would get more than 50 degrees warmer in the stratosphere, and it would destroy ozone. And there would be much more ultraviolet radiation reaching the surface. Now, obviously, with the smoke, some of the UV would be absorbed, but even even with the smoke there, you would get much more UV reaching the surface. And we've calculated what the UV index would be. The United Nations has an index of, like, if it's 10, it's extreme sunburn and you have to protect yourself. And so a very hot day in the uh, bright day in the summertime with direct sunlight. But this would get up to UV index of 15. So it would be devastating not just for uh, uh, white skin and and skin cancer, but also it it would affect the uh, plant life. It would affect the... uh, little critters that live on the surface of the ocean and affect the oceanic food chain. And part of our new project is to actually calculate the response to agriculture, to natural ecosystems, and to oceanic food chain from the enhanced UV, along with the changes of temperature and precipitation and sunlight. So we're actively calculating that. Nobody has really done a a quantitative measure of that yet. 
So, so what you're saying is that in the UK at the moment, in in a typical summer, we might have UV levels up to about eight or nine, uh, and it's a it's a hot, sunny day. And I know people don't really appreciate the fact that you can still get high UV even if it is a cloudy day or a, a cooler right. day. But what it's you're so saying, cloudy. Yeah. So, so what it you're saying is off the side of the clouds. So what you're saying in this scenario is that we could be freezing, we could be really, really cold, but then the UV could be up to fifteen. You need sunscreen and a hat and and to protect yourself. And you can protect yourself, but you can't protect all the animals and all the plants. And so, that, so the impacts on on the on plants, on on insects, on on the oceanic food chain uh, are things that, which is a huge source of food in the UK, uh, uh, might be quite quite catastrophic. Also. So back in 1945, there were bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Did the scientists at the time model what happened to the localised climate around there and what was the knock-on effect? And did we learn anything from that? We're doing that right now, but as far as I know, we're the first ones to do that. And uh, I learned something horrible when I started studying this. I argue with my father who fought in World War II about whether we should have actually dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki because you're killing all these innocent people, men, women, and children had nothing to do with the war, uh, and it's genocide. And it turns out that the U.S. policy of genocidal bombing started uh, the beginning of 1945 when they uh, sent over 300 planes to Tokyo and burned the city down. and killed 100,000 people, and more people burned to death that night than any time before or since in the history of the planet. And 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 during that whole summer, they every three or four days, they sent squads of planes and ended up burning 69 Japanese cities. So the total that was burned in Hiroshima and Nagasaki was only th- less than 3% of the total area of Japan that was burned. So there was a tremendous amount of smoke all summer long not just from those last two bombs. And we've calculated how much smoke it would be. Uh, The data are uh, not very good, so we have to estimate it. We actually looked at observations of the amount of sunlight reaching the ground in California and Chile, and there is a dip in 1945. We looked at global average temperatures. It turns out the ocean data are not very good. They're not homogeneous because the the way that the measurements were taken changed just at the end of World War II. But if you look at just land-based temperatures, there's a dip in the Northern Hemisphere of about two to three-tenths of a degree uh, Celsius, so half a degree Fahrenheit in that year. And so we think that that was the effect of all the smoke from the bombs in Japan. As you know, there was genocidal bombing of of Germany by the by the Allies also in Hamburg and Dresden, but the total amount burned over five years in Europe was a lot less than burned in Japan that summer of 1945. So it's a horrible story. Uh, Now you're not allowed to kill civilians in war. There's something called the law of war. But back then, Curtis LeMay, when he started doing this, he said, we better win this war because otherwise I'm going to jail for for war crimes. And it's a horrible story, but it's good to remind people of what happened. But this talk of nuclear war isn't something that's just in the past. It's very much here and now. Have you researched what the impact would be on the weather if two nations went to war today? It would be a horrible catastrophe if, if nuclear weapons were ever used. People have asked me what would happen if North Korea attacked, say, South Korea or Japan. And it depends how many weapons they have and how and what the targets were. And assuming that they did attack 
Korea or, or Japan and there was retaliation by the U.S. using nuclear weapons on North Korea. There's not much to burn in North Korea. There are a few cities. And so the total amount of smoke that would be generated would be probably less than our case of India and Pakistan. But we don't know for sure. We're, we have a new research project that's doing this in detail to try and calculate how much smoke. But what worries me is what if China or Russia got involved? What if they saw weapons coming toward North Korea and they said, oh, they're just using this as a, as a, uh, to try and fake us out. They're really going to start a war with us and they retaliated. So again, it's really hard to imagine a rational use of nuclear weapons and a limited use. And so once it gets started, uh, it would be, uh, it could be really horrible. And so the, the way to solve problems is not with nuclear weapons. We've been really lucky that for the last 72 years, they haven't been, there hasn't been another nuclear war. In fact, the current situation is not mutual assured destruction, it's self-assured destruction. If one, if say the US and Russia, if one country attacked the other and the other didn't retaliate, everybody in the first country would die from the climate response, from the lack of food. So if you say, I have my nuclear weapons to deter your attack, you're acting like a suicide bomber. It's completely irrational, this whole deterrence. And so the faster we get rid of the weapons, the, the faster it will be impossible for them to produce this climate catastrophe. Thank you to Professor Adam Robock and thank you to you for listening to Under the Weather from the BBC. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Under the Weather was produced by Ronan Breen and Stuart Morgan. Next time on Under the Weather. I think that the large community of atmospheric scientists is very skeptical about this. Move the planet further away from the sun. You know, there's, there's all kinds of ideas, and I don't see that they have uh, long-term effectiveness. Subscribe to Under the Weather now for a new episode every Monday.